Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I'm delighted to have with me on the show today, Sarah Ahern. She's the owner and partner at PATH, the 40-year-old women-owned market research and business management firm. Today, we're going to be talking about how is market research enabler as a growth multiplier. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Maureen. I've been looking forward to this all week. PATH stands for People Are the How. How does market research and people focus fit together? Yeah, it's a great question. You mentioned for market research and business management, we help organizations learn more about their customers and turn that into action faster than the competition. And we do that through data. There are a lot of data points out there that can be tremendously helpful, but without the context of people around them, we find it really difficult for organizations to take that action. And from our perspective, data is only as good as the action it drives. And so you mentioned we're 40 years old. My mom, Monica, started the firm 40 years ago, to a certain extent, a trailblazer in the space in market research and supply chain. And now my brother, Jonathan, and I are both in the business. And so I'm really passionate about the ability of market research to help organizations understand people better and create better experiences. Beautiful. So give our listeners an example of someone who has used your services for a long period of time and how it's helped them be successful. We're really proud of our our client relationships. I think our longest term client relationship now is 27 years and we've been running their ongoing customer experience research for that long. And one of the ways that we interact with organizations, especially big organizations, is that in order for them to make decisions about people, they really need it synthesized. We can't always action every single piece of feedback we get from customers. That's not reasonable in our businesses. So for this particular client, call their customers after almost every single experience, get that information. And then we as a partner go in deeper into the data using deeper statistical analysis to understand, okay, what's most important here? How can we help this particular organization understand where the biggest ROI is going to be, the biggest bang for their buck, and how they can use that data to take powerful action? And how has it impacted their business? What's their ROI? I mentioned this before. The challenge is that organizations aren't really built to do this. There's just a lot of competing things in the way that we do business today. And so how do you balance your P&L, something that's so clear cut with what people want, you know, all of the different kinds of feedback that you're getting from people. And for this particular client, we see them and great companies, we see them do that in a number of different ways. They have a strong vision that they want to stay true to. And so the data can help them really understand how to focus that and continue to action that. And in this case, they're a family-owned business, a hundred plus year old family-owned business. And so they want to stay true to that kind of value of family they have. So they get feedback from customers and where they're doing that well and where they're not doing it well. And they can continue to kind of like, okay, let me train up my managers here. Let me resource this particular geographic location to help them better deliver on this value of family. We also see these companies have focused leadership as a part of the way they succeed. And so the data can really help leaders who are leading these big companies get that feedback in the same way people at the front lines are. So 
it helps break down those silos and helps make decisions with customers in mind, even though it may have been a long time since they've been face to face with any number of customers. And then finally, this idea of people and data is a growth multiplier. We see organizations that lean in on customer experience, outperforming the market by up to 1200%. And that's not our data. And I could certainly go into a whole story about how that happens. But this is how organizations do it faster than the competition. We all can listen to trends and see what's happening externally. But if we're hearing directly from our customers, we can take action on that in a really quick and focused way. It helps organizations create powerful, loyal customer relationships. As you're talking, one thing that really struck me is the distance between the executive team or the leadership team and the frontline folks. And often what a frontline person will see that they're working to resolve doesn't get translated or escalated to the leadership team in a way they need it to get escalated, or there's a whole bunch of stuff getting escalated one or the other, either too much or not enough. And this allows leaders to pinpoint the top actionable items, which is invaluable when navigating all of the competing commitments. Absolutely, because it's not just our customer voices that we hear. It's our employee voices, it's external stakeholders, the market itself. All of these different pieces of information can be valuable. All information is interesting, but not all information is important for decision-making. These kind of processes help us focus that. What we find is that organizations do reach an inflection point in size. When you're a smaller organization, they, they have that kind of adage of management by walking around. And you can kind of do that with your customers too. You can stay close to them. But when you scale to a certain point, there's just no way to manage all of that feedback without having a data-driven process. And so this kind of process really helps synthesize that down and focus it. So at the end of the day, we have our eyes on delivering great experiences because that's what we're all here to do in business is to deliver great value for our customers, for our employees, for our communities. Certainly voice of the customer, you've talked about that. You also have the capacity to do voice of the employee or employee engagement. Yeah. And we find there are two sides of the same coin. Once we get good customer feedback and hear what they care about, what their wants and needs are, where they feel like the most value they get from the organization is and where they don't, gives us the opportunity to say, okay, how can we understand what the organization itself looks like? So we could do a similar process of where are the friction points? Where are we doing a great job of delivering this value and providing value to the employee? as well. And where aren't we? Because not only can we find places to improve, I feel like as leaders, we always want to see the list of top three things we need to improve. But there's a tremendous amount to be learned from the places we're doing it really well, so that we can take that and start to build it across the organization. In fact, one of our clients, they're a $700 million manufacturer. They started this process. They started getting ongoing customer feedback. We were calling all of their customers after each individual experience. They figured out, okay, this is what customers care about. And they took the same process with employees and partnered some of their top performing locations with some of the locations that needed help and built a ton of culture around it that, hey, we're all in this together. This is not an opportunity to tell these locations they're doing a terrible job and highlight these locations. This is an opportunity for us to share and partner so that we can deliver great value for our clients. And they've continuously seen the impact in their business through growth, through loyalty. So it helps really from that cultural standpoint, create these great relationships. 
It seems like the quicker I get actionable data and recommendations, then I, as the leader of an organization, can prioritize your recommendations across all the other things we're focusing on and take action as quickly as is reasonable. Yeah. This process helps you make an intentional choice about what kind of game you're playing, where in the market you want to be. So a big part of the framework we use is this idea of creating great experiences. And I referenced the American Customer Satisfaction Index. They worked with the University of Michigan to measure the performance of organizations that went all in on this. You know, they built culture around it. They have customer experience programs. They empower their teams versus the performance of the S&P 500 over the past 15 or 16 years. And like I said, what they found was that these ACSI index organizations outperform S&P 500 companies by up to 1200%. And it's not like S&P 500 companies are any slouch, right? Like some of these are blue chip companies. And so if you want to have this growth multiplier and you want to build your business around it and do your strategic planning with that in mind, you do have to make an intentional choice. You do have to say, okay, we are a company that plays this game of experiences and we're not going to get distracted by other loud voices in the conversation, like price and cost and those kind of things. We're balanced those equally, but we know that there's true financial return by going all in on this. And so we need all of that information to make good decisions. This then goes to the strategy and I'll use a company that's well known for amplifying customer experience being Disney. Yeah. That that's a company that has placed customer experience front and center. It's built into strategy. It's built into culture. It's built into performance appraisals. It is up and down a core to their business. And that customer experience piece is what keeps people returning to whether it's a park or or a TV show or a cruise, everyone talks about the exceptional experiences they have. Absolutely. And there's a great book and framework we use called The Experience Economy, Joseph Pine, James Gilmore. And one of our long-term partners and advisors has this great story about the coffee bean to kind of illustrate this idea. Like why do some companies do such a great job and they, they, they have this growth multiplier, they create these great relationships. The idea is that as a society, we've gone through four different economies. I use a coffee bean as an example. When we started all of this, it was a commodity, right? A coffee bean is a coffee bean. My brother likes to say, you know, apologies to all the coffee drinkers out there, but a coffee bean from Ethiopia is the same as a coffee bean from Colombia. Definition of a commodity, undifferentiated in the market. At a certain point, somebody had a great idea and said, you know what, if I package up this bag of beans, I can sell that to you and you'll pay a premium for it. There's value in me doing that for you. And so we kind of moved into this goods economy. And then same thing happened. At some point, somebody said, if I make this cup of coffee for you, then I can charge a premium. I can charge more for those cups of coffees than I could for this bag of coffee. And you will pay it. There's value in that. And then for the past kind of 10 or 15 years, maybe even a little longer, there's been this switch where I'm sure there are people listening that if I ask them, did you go to the gas station and buy 26 ounces of coffee? Or did you go to Starbucks and buy 12 ounces of coffee for $10 or something like that? 
there's always the gas station people. So that there's value in that too. But most people would say, no, I went to Starbucks. And it's because of this experience, because, you know, it's not to say the iced tea or the coffee that you get at Starbucks is so much different than anywhere else you get it. But they know your name, your order is consistent, no matter where in the world you go, there's a story behind the beans, they offer all different kinds of products that provide you additional value. They knew that the experience mattered. And so they went all in on it. And that's why you see companies like Disney or Apple, $6,000 per square foot profits through the roof. But you also see companies like Amazon or Walmart, $12 a square foot profits through the roof, you can play both games, you just can't get caught in the middle. That's where the goods, the services, the JC Pennies, the Sears. And so these kind of processes, bringing customer voice into it, help you make an intentional choice. Okay, which game am I playing? And if I'm going to play the experience game, I have to have the right data to be able to make the decision I need to make to deliver this great amount of value. One can argue Amazon is also the experience game. Mm -hmm. It's my online experience versus my in-person experience. But the stuff shows up typically when it's supposed to show up and having purchased things on an online auction. And I wonder if it's ever going to get here. They lose my stuff. Sometimes it shows up looking like it's been run over by a truck. Consistently, the Amazon stuff shows up when it's supposed to. The box does not look like they backed over it on its way to my house. The experience is I click on the thing, it shows up quickly and as promised. Yes. And you illustrate a great point about their strategy too. You know, probably in the beginning at a certain point, they were buying market share, really delivering for consumers through this idea of price. Jeff Bezos is famous thing of having an empty chair in the room of his leadership meeting saying, you know, our sole purpose is to deliver value to our consumer, not to our sellers, not to our partners, not to all these other stakeholders, to our consumer. His clear focus on that allows him to say, all these decisions that we're making, are they delivering for this stakeholder, this consumer? If not, they're not aligned with our business strategy. Even if you find somewhere in our financial modeling that probably could make us an extra buck or two here or probably pretty big profits, he's kept that focus in mind. As you say that, I wonder how indexing on customer versus conscious capitalism and multiple stakeholders, because I think you're also a fan of conscious capitalism. And I assume market research also helps optimize if that's your strategy. Yeah. Well, and that's why I said, you know, when you asked me about how our clients do this really well, what I see them doing, it isn't just this market research or isn't just this business intelligence conversation. They are vision driven, vision, mission, values driven. They know who they are as an organization and what they want to be and what kind of impact they want to have. And they do have good leadership. We can't really provide value to organizations that don't believe people are important. We're not the right fit for those kind of companies because all of the insights we deliver are about how you can do better by your people, how you can create more value. And so from my perspective, I feel like it's all interconnected. You can't deliver great value for customers if you're not delivering great value for your employees, at least not long-term. And similarly for your communities, you know, I think that we see a lot of big organizations be tremendous community stakeholders, and that's value for everybody. They create great loyal customer relationships, loyal employee relationships. And it's not the difference between success and failure. From my perspective, it's the difference between good and great. You can still be a good company from a financial perspective and not do a lot of this stuff, but you can't be a great company and not do this stuff. 
You also do new product testing and benchmarking. And I bring that up because as I think about back to kind of one of our themes is this volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. And it does accurately describe the world we inhabit right now. And the more data I have that's actionable, the better decisions I can make. And arguably, that's one of the key jobs of leaders. So tell me about the benchmarking study annually, and how does that help me as a leader consistently make, update my plans, think about what products we're going to introduce, think about our annual objectives and initiatives, and then we'll move to new product analysis. It really is all about turning down the noise on the things that don't matter and turning up the noise on the things that do. And that's one of the biggest ways that we differentiate with our clients is that you can certainly get a 100-page report from us with all the information that we hear from your customers. But really what we deliver is a much deeper analysis based both on, like I said, advanced statistical analysis. We have a team of PhDs that delivers on that. But then also the best practices around change management. What can you reasonably implement? What is going to make the biggest difference internally and externally? And so I'll give you an example. We worked with a client last year and we delivered a customer benchmark for them. So we went out and talked to most of their customers for statistically significant samples so they could feel really confident in it. And their goal was they were a $200 million company. They're, they're trying to double in the next three years. And so they want to take that big next step. They know they have great customer relationships, but they just don't know where to focus. They're delivering extremely high touch experiences for everybody. They have 15 different steps in this process and they want to know, okay, what makes the most difference to our customers? Cause we just can't do this. We can't continue to do all 15 of these steps if we're going to double. And so when we got the information back, it was clear, not only was this customer delivering, they were over delivering for their customers to the point that there was big time stress on the internal systems, but customers were well above what we would say is a good score. So like tens on a 10 point scale or nines on a 10 point scale and fives on a five point scale. That gives you as a leader, the opportunity to say, okay, there's some breathing room here to be a successful, great company. We don't have to have tens on a 10 point scale every single time and every single experience. And in fact, our customers are saying onboarding is important. They're saying they want us to integrate our reporting into their systems. They don't want to have to go into our systems. And then they want to talk to us on a quarterly basis. And all this other stuff we're doing is a nice to have, but it's not a need to have. And so that leader can sit down with his team and her team and say, hey, let's build it around these three touch points and then give ourselves some space to continue to deliver in other ways, onboard more clients because we've driven down our resources in these areas. So it can be a really empowering situation. It doesn't have to be an emergency situation where, oh, we're hemorrhaging customers. We don't know what to do. For me, you have a great company. You're just trying to scale it and you want to be able to focus. This is then input to annual strategy or whatever cadence people are doing strategy now, mm -hmm. as well as ongoing operations. Yeah. We have a tendency to see people use it on a one to two year basis and then on a quarterly basis as they're managing their projects, their clients, they're trying to figure out, okay, how are we doing? Are we delivering on our promises? Are we staying aligned as an organization? Those are the time horizons that we see people be really effective. 
Let's shift to new products. So say I have correctly indexed on customer experience. It's part of my strategy. It's part of my culture. We are growing and hence we're identifying opportunities for additional products. Now I call my friend Sarah again and say, hey, we're launching this new thing. Help me by gathering some data on my hypothesis that this will solve one of my clients' problems. These processes are insulation to this, like we get there honestly mindset, because what we see a lot in new product innovation is that there are a lot of companies that come to us with products that are pretty fully baked. Because like I said, we get here honestly. We feel like we have a good relationship with our customers. Things have boiled up through the organization saying, hey, we hear this is really important, organically, conversations. I think there's a big opportunity. We maybe look at our market share. We look at our strategy and say, hey, we said we wanted to have bigger market share in this particular industry. Let's launch a new product or service here and try and drive that market share. I'll give you an example. When this particular company came to us, they were a multi-billion dollar manufacturer as well. They came and said, hey, we just want to know where we're going to launch this, the price, and how exactly we should position it. And so we brought customers into the conversation. We said, okay, you have great relationships. You're a premium company. You're playing this experience game. Check, check, check. All the things that help us know we can deliver really good value for you. We're aligned. You care about people. Let's talk to your customers. Let's do some focus groups and see what they think about this product. Let's look at the market, see are there other people doing it? Is this brand new? Are we talking about really needing to find early adopters because this is such an innovative thing? Or, or are you just providing a little bit more value on the products that you provide today? And then we're big believers in validating. So we've got the good qualitative feedback and focus groups. We're going to take that out. We're going to do a quantitative study. And what we found in this particular situation is that people wouldn't pay 10% less than the, their current products for this particular new concept. And, you know, you would think, okay, that means that this is a failure. Like this is big time upset in this organization. They put all this time and energy into developing this. They're going to launch it. In actual fact, they were having to make a big decision about investing $5 million into just being able to have the capabilities to do this. And so these processes can really, like I said, from a leadership standpoint, help you place your bets much more effectively. There's no way to drive down risk in business completely. To a certain extent, there's always a little bit of a gamble in these things. We make educated guesses. So these kind of processes, bringing customers, allow us to do that no matter how far along in the process we are. What I hear then is it is as much a risk management play and a portfolio management play. I may still choose to launch a new product. I know I launched something several years too early. We're now getting traction with something I launched years ago. It just wasn't right timing, but it was part of our portfolio and our brand. And it may have been why people chose to come to us, even though they didn't buy that thing. Absolutely. Yep. Because what we're trying to do is build loyal customer relationships, right? Loyal employee relationships, really strong win-win relationships on both sides. And that's not a nebulous term. You know, loyal customers, loyal employees, but focusing on customers, they do certain things. They stay with you. 
they buy more things from you, they give you feedback, they recommend you to other people. Those are the four loyalty behaviors. And to do that, it is a process of continuously investing. And sometimes we do make missteps, but if we're operating with that in mind, okay, you know, who are my most loyal customers? How can I can continue to deliver value to them? How can I involve them in that? Make sure their voice is heard in the process. All of those things of great relationships come into play. They get it. They get that not everything is going to be a home run. And they appreciate you just asking them to be a part of the process. And so even if it's a misstep from a strategy standpoint, okay, this isn't going to fit perfectly right now, it continues to be a great way to bring your customers in or your employees in and continue to invest in those relationships. Are there specific behaviors that consistently drive customer loyalty, kind of irrespective of industry? Because you talked about too much. We all know what too little looks like. When I call in, heaven forbid, I have to call somebody now and I get put on hold and they keep telling me how much they care about me. Yeah. Like if you really <laughs> cared about me, you would answer the phone right. <laughs> or go to my website, but the website requires a pin that I never got. And the only way to get the pin is to call the number that told me to go to the website. Yeah. <laughs> so we know what what suboptimal looks like. Right. What is right now? Because you talk about voice of the customer, yet often people like me don't want to talk on the phone, but I'll answer a survey. If there's one or two things you can fairly consistently count on to elevate customer experience, what would that be? For this past year that I thought was really interesting pop in the data. And then our, I love our research manager. She, she loves the kind of snarky article. And so she wrote five techniques to lose a customer based on all of our data. <laughs> and so she's got some great insights from all the 40 years of customer research we've done. But the first thing I want to talk about is this really interesting pop. So we do a lot of quantitative surveys. And I'll be honest, it requires a big lift up front to get good responses back, right? You have to really show customers that you are going to use this information from a leadership level, from a direct contact level, then mm -hmm. follow up multiple times. Sometimes you have to call them and say, hey, can you take that survey? I really do want to hear what you have to say. In those surveys, we ask all the normal questions that you would think. How easy is it to do business? How satisfied are you? But we also give the opportunity for people to say what the most important reason is for their answer. So, you know, if, how likely are you to recommend? That's one of the loyalty behaviors I mentioned. What's the single most important reason? And in multiple surveys, we probably do 100 surveys a year. In so many of those surveys, alignment with values came out really strong. I trust them. I feel like we're aligned in their values. The people I interact with are good people, especially like supply chain professional services. There's so very tactical things like, okay, did I get my products? Was it on time? Those kind of things. You think those would kind of boil to the top, but in actual fact, this idea of values alignment and trust came out so strongly. When I've talked to people, kind of like what you said, Maureen, that when I've talked to organizations that are trying to do this work and they're making promises, I really encourage them to be as authentic as they can be. Yes, aspirational is important, right? We have to set good goals for ourselves, but customers know when it's not authentic. So come to the table as your true authentic self as an organization. If you care about people, tell them why and how you do that. They know and they see that and it has a tendency to be one of the biggest drivers proactive communication, not making customers do extra work to get what they need from you. Those kind of things are evergreen. We can always do better at those. 
these kind of processes help us understand what about communication. Like I said, for that client that was over delivering, it was really onboarding and their clients didn't want to sign into their portal to get the information they needed. It makes such logical sense, but you know, organizations think, oh, I invested a lot into improving my technology to provide you extra value. All you have to do is sign into my portal and get all of your information. That's not what customers want. They want you to make it easy for them. So those kind of the basics, communication, making it easy, that's really what matters in addition to values. Okay. So I basically like you, trust you, you're a person I want to do business with, mm -hmm. and then doing business is easy. Absolutely. And I've listened to your preferences. I know because of all this change, right? Like there's just so much iteration organizations have to do throughout the year to meet the needs of their customers. Some of this basic stuff gets lost in the shuffle. You know, like I'm just trying to continuously get you what you need and make sure that I'm delivering on whatever the tactical product and services that I'm doing, that things like being authentic, you know, trying to just speak to this person as another person, creating good relationships, over-communicating, those kind of things sometimes get lost. As I'm listening, I'm also listening as a business owner and thinking about, okay, am I doing these basics? Do people know what my values are? And are they aligned? And are we easy to do business with? And we've just hired a new person and she'll be listening to this podcast <laughs> well before it airs. And we'll be looking at our customer experience because we've done a light version of the customer experience journey. We are with our chief revenue officer reworking the website to make sure the buyer experience looks good. Is that onboarding experience good? I think for us, it's just easy to lose sight of everything seems urgent. Everyone that I work with seems overworked. You know, where we used to go home early on Fridays and during the summer, people would have short Fridays. They may have short Fridays, but it's because they've worked their 55 or 60 hours a week by Friday morning. And so they're only going to work four hours on Friday. It feels like everyone I'm working with seems more inundated, hence focusing seems harder. The evidence is we are working at a pace that's unsustainable. Your example of the client who is over-indexing on things that customers may care less about, not not a, we don't care. Right. Because when something goes wrong, we start to care. But if we're over-indexing on things that people care less about, that data would be as important to me because I know what to stop doing or ratchet back so I can pay more attention to the things that people are choosing or deselecting me for. It's so true. My executive mentor gave me the phrase in business when I was a kind of a baby consultant. I was just starting out and getting really upset with my clients for not giving me the information I needed. And, you know, oh, how could they possibly do that? You know, this idea that we get here, honestly, just by the way that business works and, you know, especially leaders and organizations have a tremendous amount of investment and care. We're trying to do so many things well that we get there. Honestly, we get distracted by things that that do matter, but maybe don't matter to the customer. And I'll give you two examples of that. One, a personal example, it being in market research, methodology is queen. You really have to come in with a strong perspective on how you do these things effectively so that you get good data out the other end. So that's what we're promising 
One of our brand promises is quality. We will go the extra mile to make sure that you feel confident when you're reading that report of your top three things you can do, that you feel confident. It's great data. It represents your customers. And there's this piece of our process because it is better. Let's say we're doing a project with you, Maureen. It's better for you to send the link out to get the survey information because people will respond to you, right? Like who, who is path in this random email address? Very easy to ignore as opposed to you, Maureen, sending out this link. But that's a big ask for an organization, a busy organization to facilitate that process. And so we've had to really say, okay, we have to be pragmatic in this methodology. Yes, of course, that's better. But is there a way we can make this easier on our customers and still get relatively similar results, still powerful, confident results? And so it forced us to push in a direction that's maybe not that purist methodology standpoint, but still delivering important information. I feel like I haven't heard anybody say they have small growth goals this year. I feel like everybody I talk to is like, I want to double, I want to triple, I'm trying to scale, you know, 400%. When organizations do this, sometimes what happens, I'm thinking of a particular client, is that you can see the way to business success without putting a ton of strain on your systems because it focuses you in on where that win-win is. So one of our clients took these insights and saw, oh, hey, like I have a lot of loyal customers on this side of my business, but not a lot of loyal customers and satisfied customers on this side of my business. Maybe this is an opportunity for me and what they ended up doing was they went from 124 customers to 68 customers, still maintaining EBITDA, just by saying, okay, these customers are the ones that feel all of this value and connection with our organization. What more can we do for them? And so as opposed to this, I have to double, triple to be successful as a business. How about I just deliver great stuff for the customers that really connect with me and grow organically there? And so I do think... It has this leveling effect, or maybe it just creates more of a spectrum of what business success looks like and how we can achieve that as organizations. Well, and that gets back to the strategy piece. Mm -hmm. Do we need to triple? What is our core mission? We are certainly looking at making the biggest impact on our customers, the leaders in the world. We're living in this tension of customers who pay us fund the things we do that are not paid. And so our biggest impact may be the podcast because it reaches potentially millions of people. And yet we have also customers with whom we work very directly and provide one-on-one -on -one or one-on-group experiences, leadership development experiences, but experiences. And how do we balance our commitment to the impact we want to make in the world with our commitment to our very important individual clients? It's to be balanced, not fixed. Yeah. Yeah. That's why having a consistent conversation with your customers and then asking them these are things that are important to you. So like transparency is one of our core values. Asking our customers how effectively we're delivering on that for them and why allows us to take something that feels very soft and human, put some metrics on it and balance it against a P&L. So when you say transparency, because we share that value, we had conversations about a year ago, what do we post on our website? So many websites have the contact us, contact us, schedule a call. Mm -hmm. We put a lot more information out and then we're happy to talk to you, but I'm an introvert. 
I want to go out and get the information I need from a website, not have to call a person, get on their schedule, however long from now, time zones, and just I'm an introvert. I don't want to talk to people sometimes. <laughs> so I, when I'm doing research, I want to go do research, not schedule a day worth of phone calls. So we decided to put pricing or price ranges on the website, mm -hmm. because if you want a $100 leadership class, we're not the right people. If you want to pay $10,000, that's above what we charge, we're happy to accept it. <laughs> but there's a market that is a right fit for us. Mm -hmm. I want to make it easy for people to select or deselect if they're not a right fit. Yeah. That value continues to drive the experience we want people to have through the buying journey and consequently then the, the customer experience. So for us just being clear on that one item has really driven the actions we take. Now, if you were to interview the people who didn't pick us, which is harder to find uh, because they don't necessarily leave a message saying <laughs> we didn't pick you and this is why, it would be interesting to see if part of that is appropriately not fit. Yeah. What I feel like the framework tells us, the research tells us is that likely because you wouldn't be compensated in a way that would allow you to deliver great value for them, right? Like there'd be pressure in that system. It wouldn't be a win-win that likely those aren't your best, most loyal customers who are going to stay, who are going to buy more things from you, tell people how amazing you are, give you feedback to improve. Giving people the opportunity to participate in this through this value of transparency gives us all a better shot at finding that win. And there are people who do it brilliantly. There are university certification programs. There's the American Management Association. They're just places we can't compete with that will do an exceptional job. Let's help our buyers understand, don't spend more time on our site than you need. Go to a provider who will absolutely knock it out of the park for what you're looking for. A hundred percent. Let's learn and turn. Let's learn more about your customers turn into action faster than the competition. It has a tendency to sound like, well, then the competition loses, but I actually don't view it that way. I think that we focus in on this model. It just allows us all to find that win with the people who are best suited for us. And from my perspective, there are plenty of people out there to do business with. We can all find plenty of people to build that win-win relationship with. And so this gives us a way to do that in that authentic way. You said people respond to surveys better if the person that they know, so Sarah sends me a survey versus mm -hmm. some random firm. Right. We're doing a leadership assessment, 360 assessment, and we ask the person who's getting assessed. So I'm getting assessed. I want input from you and our producer, Dan, and several people on my team. I can send the link, but the feedback I got was that looks like it's no longer anonymous, that I'm now going to read the stuff. Yep. How do you balance that? Because we designed it for this exact reason. You'll open it and know it's not spam if it comes from me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a great call out. So the decision point in whether a survey is anonymous or not should be, is there any sort of potential for retribution, right? Like, could this mm -hmm. impact me in any sort of way that would be in a meaningful way, right? Like, that's why we think the employee-employer relationship, yeah, there's some risk there. It's fair that we make these surveys anonymous because this is my job we're talking about, and I'm not going to give you good feedback if it could potentially affect my job, which could affect my family and all those kind of things. 
if it's not that kind of situation, we have an opportunity to say, let's say I was giving the survey, Maureen, and I was sending it to you, like, Maureen, I'd really like your feedback. And if you feel comfortable with it not being anonymous, that would be great for me because this would give me the opportunity to start a dialogue about it, right? Like I'm intentionally here to learn and I want to improve. And, and that's what we say with customers, like there's skin in that game for the customer. That's why we don't make those anonymous because this is an opportunity to relationship build. We're both coming to the table, feedback, potential action, having this conversation, making people feel heard. But there is that decision point, how much impact could this kind of feedback have on this person personally? And that's why we protect people with anonymity in those situations. It is important when we think about the ethics of it, it's an important consideration. The feedback's absolutely anonymous, but the link goes out from the person who's requesting the 360. So I would send you a link, but I don't get the data. It goes off to, mm. in this case, we're the firm that's compiling the data and doing the reports. Let's use you as an example. You're doing a 360 with your employees and your team members and your clients. You would send the link and say, I'm doing this 360, mm -hmm. it's anonymous. But the fact that it comes from you, one could say, then it's not anonymous because you're sending out the link. This is where I feel like it pushes so much into change management because I feel like that is a very similar situation to an employee survey. The employer would send the link that would come back to us, path, anonymous. In a big organization, it's so much about involving representation of those stakeholders up front. So that by the time the survey link comes out, they know there is a third party. It's proven that third party has shown up to the meetings. There's been multiple levels of communication. So it's not happening to them. It's happening with them. And I think there's kind of a similar, much lighter weight process. But how do we just do a little bit of priming up front to give people the opportunity to feel like this is their process too? Because there's just so much more trust in that situation than there is hey, I'm going to send out this link. And, you know, time is prohibitive. We can't do it in every situation. But that's why there's this big picture perspective for big organizations. I always think, what's the little piece I can take from that and add to my process to try and implement it with this best practice in mind? So now maybe we need to give the coach who's doing the assessment the choice and the client the choice. People are more likely to open an email from their boss or their peer. Mm-hmm then even if you say there's an assessment coming from X organization, there's still, I'm so afraid of phishing that I rarely open and click on anything. And junk mail. And it's, it's just tough. It's a tough technology environment. And I think that feedback has become, because there's such a huge volume of it that we're asked to do, it's kind of become a transactional thing. Like, okay, well, if I want your feedback, I'm going to send you a survey and ask you to do it. And then you can give me your feedback and I'll do with it what I will. And I feel like that's the lesson is that people know that. If you send them a survey link and you don't tell them what you're going to do with it, and this is what I see commonly, especially for companies that come and say, we've done surveys in the past. This isn't going to work. Well, what did you do? Oh, you sent out a survey link and you got some feedback and you didn't tell them what you heard. You didn't show them action. You didn't reiterate that this was important. You, you know, all of these things. It's just a big lift to do it. It's a lot of work. But this is the whole point of it. Surveys are just an opportunity to build a better relationship. And so it does require a little bit of that upfront and the closing the loop and showing that you did something with it to make any of this investment valuable.
any of this driving more loyal relationships, more win-wins. And the 360 is about a loyal relationship, right? That you want people on your team, not only to fill out the survey because you want to get better, but you want to learn to relate to them differently. It's not objectively about you, Sarah, being better, but as I segment the data, my direct reports want one thing, my peers want something else, my boss wants something else fairly consistently. Leaders do well with one of those three groups that do okay with another. And occasionally they're just not so good with the third group because they're using a a similar style and approach for everybody. Right. And it needs to be more nuanced. And so we can help break down that difference. But I need to know as much information as possible so I can help someone function more effectively. It's so true. I, I mean, like, not to keep on going back to it, but it's like, of course, we get there, honestly, like, you know, like we have this style, this leadership style, or this style of delivering to customers. How are we supposed to customize it? You know, what's the expectation here for me to understand how similar and different all of these different either people or groups are? It's really hard for me as one individual to be able to do that effectively, even harder for an organization made up a ton of different individuals to do that effectively. So this awareness opportunity can be really powerful. And I'm sure there are plenty of organizations that don't do this, but the ones I interact with, the, the ones that we're fortunate enough to have as clients, there's a really powerful, good intention there. Even in surveys that come back and they're not like that one I mentioned where they were over-delivering, when they, where they're terrible. And they, you know, there's a ton of very frustrating, bad feedback in here. Your products are crappy. Your communication is crappy. I'm not getting what I want from you. You know, the fact that these organizations are doing it, there's some good intention to try and make this better. And so that's really what should be delivered out of this is an opportunity to just see what's going on and then see what, what you can reasonably do. What are the next reasonable steps you can take as an organization? It is the gift of data and the insights, actionable insights, doing, again, the leader feedback yeah, some people get bad feedback or feedback they would not prefer from even if it's one person. Usually, if you're doing this kind of feedback experience, you have made a choice to improve. Even if you're exceptional, you want to improve. Mm -hmm. That data creates the opportunity for the additional conversations. Mm -hmm. At least in this context, the data is very helpful but it invites an additional conversation where I say, Sarah, you and I are working together and this thing I love, but it would be helpful if you did this one thing differently. I worked with a group and uh, it was the team giving feedback to the boss. So he asks for something, everything's a fire drill. I think he was a former trauma surgeon. So everything is really immediate in his request. What they said is you never say thank you. And it's less about the thank you, but we don't know if what we gave you met your needs, we have no way of knowing. It's just we send it off to the black hole called your email box, and then we never hear back. And interestingly, he said, I assumed everyone was busy, so one more email would just be an extra thing for you to read. So I don't. This was the invitation for him to close the loop. Hey, this was what I needed. We're done. That was an interesting learning for him. He changed his behavior and people felt their employee experience changed by that simple piece of data that was actionable and he chose to take action immediately. Such a great example. I would imagine they're all there for a reason, right? They've aligned. There's a vision. They feel like the work they do is important, right? They're all trying to do it. 
and there's an intentional leadership. This person's not intentionally trying to be a jerk or trying to, you know, dismiss contributions. And we can't be all things to all people. So we've kind of gone through the first few gates that make us know that this is worth it, right? Investing into these relationships is worth it because we do align and we want to do great work and all that kind of stuff. So then now we're not all things to all people. We're focused in on how we can deliver better value and create a better relationship. Now, what are the opportunities? What are the few opportunities? Because that is the landscape here. That's kind of the lesson behind the Sears's and the JCPenney's and the Toys R Us's is that you do have to make a choice, right? We can't action every single piece of feedback we get from every single person ever. But if there's alignment, there's shared values, there's an opportunity to deliver that mutual value, it's worth doing these extra little things. It's not distracting. It is actually important to do these extra little things to make sure these relationships are strong. In this case, this CEO absolutely wanted to do the right thing, as did the employees. They're a healthcare organization. They were there because they cared about their clients' health. Absolutely right intense. His coming out of the trauma and surgery background, if you're in an ER, you're running from body to body people bleeding, stuff I don't want to see from my clients. Yeah. <laughs> and so his reaction was one more step in a process takes five critical seconds from the person next to him who also needs to get care. It was a very thoughtful response. But as he moved into a leadership role in this setting, that same very thoughtful response didn't work. The data allowed him to make different decisions. Often it's not a big thing. You don't have to be a different person. Right. It's a small behavior. Watching a leader who's saying resilience is an issue in our organization, in this case, a woman who had young children, she would go home, take care of her kids and start working later at night. And her team would measure how quickly before other people responded. And they started then all checking email late at night because they didn't want to be the slow responder mm -hmm. in the leadership space specifically. Occasionally, it is the data that allows me to have the conversation that creates the meaning. And I assume in your insights, it's the data that allows me to talk to my customer that creates the meaning and drives new action. A hundred percent. To go back to that technology example I gave. We all hear technology is important regardless of industry. That's the whole thing, right? If you're not transforming with technology, you're going to be left behind, right? And especially that customer I mentioned, a technology popped. And it wasn't that they needed to tear down their technology system and rebuild it from scratch. They just needed to realize, oh, our clients are facing the exact same thing. I just need to be empathetic to the fact that they also have 30 different technology platforms they're using. They don't want to use mine too. So all I have to do is go in and click export report, email, a little extra work, but not a huge paradigm shift that's going to like, you know, crack the foundations of the organization. Little things, little opportunities for awareness. Let me put myself in your position a little bit more so I understand you better and then I can create more value, align with you better. So I think you're right. It's individual, but also organizational. Let's wrap on that thought that it is individual and organizational, and it's some cases small, some cases big shifts that allow us to respond to our customers' experience quicker, and that drives the 12,000%? 1,200%, yeah. That's still a big number. <laughs> <laughs> 1,200%, so significant 
impact on growth and profitability and customer satisfaction. Yep. Allowing you to really balance the function of your business with the people to, to create these great relationships. Beautiful. So Sarah, how would our listeners reach you? You can check out my company, Path, at pathgrowthgrowth.com. And, and certainly you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope you gain some insights from Sarah that you can put into practice. For daily leadership tidbits from us and our guests, be sure to follow us at the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn and follow me, Maureen Metcalf, on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm.